Good morning. Our sermon today is over 1 Samuel chapters 6 and 7. We have already read chapter 6. So chapter 7, um, page 230, I believe, of the Blue Bibles. It's after Ruth before 2 Samuel. And then the men of Kiriath-Harim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Harim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah, and drew water, and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, open our eyes and our ears this morning. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover your peace through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We have such a great text to talk about this morning. We've been talking about idolatry and how fallible human beings have oftentimes tried to use God to further our own personal aims and agendas. For the Philistines and for the Israelites, this did not work out so well. Of course, 
it doesn't work out well for us either. I want to point out some similarities and some differences about this text as compared to today. First off, the God of 1 Samuel and the God we know today are the same God. God is no different today than he was then. The God who we feel comfortable praying to today, the God who hears our prayers and loves us, is the same God in 1 Samuel. He isn't any angrier back then as opposed to now. He is also no less sovereign today than at the time of 1 Samuel. Nor is any less righteous The same triune God is in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. There are some differences as well. Certainly, technology, politics, and cultural norms have changed. Out of all of the differences that exist between then and now, one of the biggest is this. God has revealed himself more thoroughly through his son, Jesus Christ. So our understanding of God and his magnificent grace is more robust. God isn't different, mind you, but our understanding is more informed. Another similarity is that we need an intercessor. Today, just as much as then, God wants restitution today just as much as he expected it then. So we need to know what the sacrifice is that can bring us back into the good graces of God. Is this even something that we can do? You would think, I mean, it would be rational to say that because of the fuller picture of God's grace being revealed to us, that we would behave and act so much better than at any time in the past, so that we wouldn't even need an intercessor. But we still sin. Even though we consider ourselves to be saved or Christian, we still sin. We have yet another similarity with our text today, and that is the sin that the people committed are the same today as then. Idolatry especially, as rampant as it was then, is just as rampant as it is today. So I want you to keep in mind our difference in understanding the revelation of God. I want you to keep in mind Jesus Christ, and the cross. We also have to keep in mind that we are still sinners. We are going to sin. There are things, even if it's just for a brief amount of time, that we will place ahead of God. Money, cell phones, internet games, sex, food. The list goes on and on. It seems very frustrating to hear how truly incapable we are at anything. Today I want to introduce to you a certain management style. You're not going to find this in any book per se. It's more of a management style that's born out of experience. Have you ever been asked, well, I have good news and I have bad news. Which do you want first? I did not research the numbers on what people actually prefer, the good news or the bad news. But it does remind me of a certain captain in the fire department that I worked with who developed this management theory. He called it the slap tickle. The slap tickle. Now keep in mind this was not an actual slap, nor was it an actual tickle. So tomorrow when you are at work, do not go up to one of your coworkers 
and actually slap or tickle them. <laughs> slap tickle is basically a theory that says to give someone the bad news first, the slap. Then you tickle them with the good news, so that after your encounter with them, they are walking away feeling good. The slap tickle. Chapter 6 and chapter 7 have a slap tickle. And true to this management theory, we will explore this as we go over our chapters today. If we start where Tim left us off last sermon with verse 512, we can see that the Philistines were remorseful. They were crying out to God. In verse 6-1, we see that the ark has been gone from Israel for seven months. That is, seven long months that the Philistines were being afflicted with death, with tumors, and with disease that these mice were bringing. I can only imagine the scramble of their leadership, the shuffling around as they tried everything to stem the tide of God's wrath until finally they wanted to be rid of the ark and they went to the priests for a way to do it. They asked them their advice on what to do with the ark, this thing, this talisman, this seat of the God of Israel's power, the thing that is bringing them such terrible fortune. They're seeking to get rid of the ark, thinking in their limited human way that God is magically tied to this piece of furniture. But they want to know what they need to pay so that the God of Israel will be assuaged. The priests tell the rulers of the Philistines in verse 6-3, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. The guilt offering is decided to be golden tumors and golden mice. Of course, this decision must have come with some debate, I'm sure there were some in the Philistine hierarchy who asked, are we really being punished by God? Is this really a wrath from this all-powerful being? Isn't this all just some sort of coincidence? To which the priests advise, why harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? Why continue to endure this just to send the ark back anyways? What comes to fruition is a scheme, one that was cooked up as part, I'm sure, of some compromise between those rulers who thought it was all coincidence and those who knew that God was at work against them. Starting at verse 6-7, they took two cows that never had a yoke, and they put a yoke on them, which I imagine was something like walking a cat with a leash. They also took the calves away from these cows, they harnessed the cows, hooked them up to a cart. They placed the ark and the offering into the cart and said, if these cows go on their own to Beth Shemesh, then it is God who has done this great harm. If not, then it is just a coincidence. Their plan, by all logic, would make it impossible for the ark to be brought back to Israel. This arrangement is like a quid pro quo. It is transactional. On the one hand, the Philistines are thinking that God is malleable to the will and schemes of humanity. They are showing the same kind of thinking that got the Israelites in their terrible predicament. And they are showing the same terrible disdain for the God of Israel as when they carelessly stored the Ark of the Covenant with this Dagon character. 
On the other hand, this plan of the Philistines sounds like many prayers that we have heard or might have said ourselves. God, if you just do this for me, I will go to church or work in the soup kitchen or something else. We, of course, know that the cows go to where they are supposed to go. Despite the desire the cattle had for their calves, there was no turning to the side. They walked straight on to Beth Shemesh. No matter the schemes of humanity, God prevails. And the Philistines knew that it was not a coincidence because they witnessed the progression of the cart and the reception of it in Beth Shemesh. And then, as verse 16 says, they went back to Ekron. Up until this point, we have not heard much about the Israelites. We can surmise from verse 6-1, and the knowledge that the ark has been in Philistines' possession for seven months, that the Israelites were also devastated. But now the ark is returned. Can you imagine how happy the Israelites must have been? The cows walk right into a town of the Levites, the priestly tribe of Israel. Upon receipt of the ark, the people of Beth Shemesh immediately sacrifice as a burnt offering, along with some other sacrifices, those cows. And they, they took those golden images of God's wrath against the Philistines and placed them on the stone, the very stone that those cows walked right up to. In verse 618, it reads, The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Beth Shemesh. God is sovereign over all his creation, over the earth, animals, over non-believers and believers. This is a great victory for God. The schemes of humanity, the sins of humanity, are in no way capable of stopping God. But the people of Israel are still having a rough go of it. It seems that despite going through the rituals of sacrificing the cows as a burnt offering, the Israelites are still showing disdain for God. Chapter 6, verse 19 says, And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. The Philistines and the Israelites had both tried to honor God one with their golden tumors and mice, and the other with burnt offerings. They were both taking it upon themselves to make it right between them and God. They were trying to reconcile themselves to God. There are many questions that we can ask, but the most important one in this chapter is right there in verse 620. Who is able to stand before the Lord? This holy God. This rhetorical question is the slap. On our best day, we are flawed. Again, the slap. No matter how good we think we can look or act, there is no way that we can be unblemished enough to stand before God. Again, the slap. If we just leave now, the story has a bitter end. It has a very rough truth. If we leave now, what is the point of doing anything? Again, the slap. But wait a second. Is there no way that we can be reconciled to God? We know that 
yes, there is no way that we can approach God on our own. But just as the schemes of the Philistines cannot stop God, neither does our sins. As the sting of that slap begins to fade, there is this. God provides a way. As we get to the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7, we see that Israel has taken the ark to Kiriath-Herim and consecrated Eleazar to have charge over the ark. And Israel lamented after the Lord. They lamented for 20 years. Not only have they been in this state of remorse for 20 years, it appears they were also still worshiping other gods. Samuel rightly corrects them, telling them, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. In verse 7, 3, and 4, we start to see a genuine repentance unfolding in Israel. Here in this verse, with the call to the Israelites to return with all of their heart, Samuel is reminding the nation of Israel of the Shema that's found in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. It is so named because of the Hebrew word that begins these verses, Shema, hear or listen. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 read like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. There's one point that I want to highlight as we get into chapter 7. There is a tickle coming. But we should know exactly what that tickle is and who is doing the tickling. We have seen Israel repent and turn to the Lord here in the first part of chapter 7. With Samuel's reminder to give all that you are to God, one might think that reconciliation to God starts with humanity, that it starts with our choice, that we are, in a way, our own ticklers. We also know, since we have read this already, that Israel wins in the upcoming battle with the Philistines. Now, there will be those who look at the story of victory here in chapter 7, and they will equate the story with a gospel of prosperity. They will say that if you just live right, God will bless you. If you choose God, you will triumph over your enemies. Conversely, this thinking would say that if you're not living right, God will curse you. People have and will think that every bad thing that happens to them is because they are not praying enough or that God is punishing them for some unknown and unperceived sin. That being right with God makes all things in this life perfect and you will be rich and healthy and never fail in your endeavors. Our text does show that yes, the Israelites were victorious in battle, significantly victorious in battle. But they still had to go to war. And the business of war is not a blessing. If we look at the text in such a way, we are making God into a rabbit's foot, some sort of charm or talisman that grants us good luck. We reduce God to something akin to a spiritual hitman 
someone we can hire to do our bidding. The point of the text isn't that God serves us. It isn't that we reconcile ourselves to him. We are not the tickle. We're not the good news. In verse 7-7, seven, seven, we see the people being afraid. They are afraid because, again, just like in chapter 4, the Philistines are gathering up their army to march against Israel. Just as they did in chapter 4, but this time the Israelites do something different. Instead of looking to the idol of the ark, they cry out to Samuel and beg of him to keep praying for them. We do not reconcile ourselves to God. We are finite, weak, sinful, and fallen. In comparison to the holiest of holies, the infinite majesty of God, we're not even ants. I simply cannot explain to you how seemingly insignificant we are. That's the slap. But we are also, at the same time, known and loved by God. God has made for us a provision, a covenant, whereby we can be reconciled to him. That's the tickle. That's the good news. God has given us the law. He has given to the people of Israel the means by which they can be cleansed for their sins. Paul says in Romans that the wages of sin is death. And the Shema calls for us to love God with all of our essence, all of our being. It should be our own blood and body that we sacrifice for our sins. Our Heavenly Father, in His infinite grace, has given the law, which in turn gives a path for a substitute, a replacement for our atonement. In verse 9, Samuel takes a lamb and offers it, body and blood as a burnt offering to the Lord. He cries out to the Lord on behalf of God's chosen people, and God answers him. Just as Samuel's offering up the lamb, just as the Philistines were drawing closer and closer, unsheathing their swords, closing their ranks, God thunders with a mighty sound that day against them, throwing them into confusion and thus defeating the Philistines. The contrast to the events of chapter 4 is very stark. Chapter 4, the Israelites tried to use the ark and wield the power of God for themselves, for their own glorification. Yet in chapter 4, the people had turned from God to the ark. They traded God for a box. The outcome was deserved. But here they cry out to God. They cried out to God's chosen intercessor, Samuel who in the performance of the God-given gift of grace found in the law gave an atoning sacrifice of body and blood to God on behalf of the chosen people of Israel. That the defeat of the Philistine by God's mighty sound occurred at the same time is no coincidence. The text is telling us of the profound importance for an intercessor, a mediator on behalf of God's chosen. Now what or who does that remind you of? God created not with his hands or tools, but by his word. God saved the Israelites, not by striking the Philistines dead, 
but by a mighty sound. And in the first verse of the Gospel of John, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And there is the tickle. The Word became flesh. There is the good news. God has given the law, but He has also given us the grace of His Word made flesh that fulfills the law. God reconciles us to Him. God provides a mediator, an intercessor. Here in 1 Samuel, the law of Moses allows a substitutionary atonement for the sins of the people by way of the blood and body of unblemished animals, such as that of a nursing lamb. When we were talking about how things are different today, I mentioned that the biggest difference today in the time of 1 Samuel isn't that God loves us more or judges less. It isn't that culture has advanced so much and learned so much that we are so much more sophisticated than the Philistines or Israelites. God is not impressed with our refinement. We are still not righteous before the Lord. We take much pride in our sin. We still fail and fall. We still make idols out of the world that is around us. We still need an intercessor. We need the sacrifice of body and blood. God, in His generous grace, gave us the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate unblemished lamb, and the ultimate intercessor, the restitution of body and blood in His Son, Jesus Christ, which is everlasting. So when we are called into repentance and we confess our sins to Jesus, we are forgiven in that moment, just as God confused the Philistines in that very moment that Samuel sacrificed the lamb. So too are we forgiven of our sins, and they are dropped into the sea of forgetfulness. The sacrifice that Jesus made was both human and God. The body and blood of Jesus Christ is holy and unblemished and everlasting. So are we cleansed from our sin by that body and blood. Even today, some 2,000 years later, we are atoned and reconciled back to God. Chapter 6 slaps us into the realization that we cannot do it on our own. Chapter 7 shows us how Israel is called back into a right relationship with God by God through his chosen intercessor, Samuel. Chapter 7 shows us that it is God's saving grace, something entirely external that brings us heart, soul, and might into relationship with God. And that is the tickle. That's the good news. Let us pray. O Lord, the author of this spiritual life, who has given to us the good seed of your word, Grant that we may receive it into honest hearts, and so guard it by your grace that the faith and hope and love which you have begotten may be in us the beginning of life eternal through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.